Since its release in 1994, the animated motion picture, The Lion King, has grossed over $768 million. It ranks in the top 25 of all-time blockbusters. If you have kids younger than 20 years old, you've probably seen The Lion King. The story's about a young lion cub named Simba and his struggle to regain the kingdom that has been stolen from his father, Mufasa, the former Lion King. The evil villain, Scar, has taken control of the jungle and he's ruined life for all of the animals. One night, while gazing into a starry sky, Simba hears the voice of his father say to him, You are my son and the one true king. His his father's affirmation is what motivates Simba to embark on his mission. He returns to overthrow Scar and his vicious hyenas. Simba liberates the animals and proves that he is the true Lion King. Though not a perfect analogy by any stretch, the fairy tale does, though, have some striking similarities to the book of Matthew. In chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. It proves that Jesus is the Lion King. It records his messianic pedigree. It proves that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Chapter 2 tells of his birth and his enemies attempt to kill him. In chapter 3, his father speaks from heaven and reaffirms his identity. In chapter 4, Jesus takes on Scar, the devil, in a wilderness showdown. Chapters 5 through 7 are Jesus' explanation of what life is like in his kingdom. But now in chapter 8, the Lion King roars. Jesus begins to strip Scar and his hyenas of their strongholds. He liberates the animals of the jungle from disease and demons. Jesus shows his power even over nature. Jesus begins to prove to the people of the Galilee that he alone is the Lion King. Chapter 8 begins, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper. Leprosy was the AIDS of the ancient world. It was an incurable disease that started out as a white patch on the skin. That white patch became an ulcerated sore. Eventually, leprosy ate away the flesh and caused all manner of physical deformities. Lepers lost ears and noses, fingers and toeses. Leprosy turned feet into nubs. Research has revealed that leprosy numbs the nerves and it causes the inability to feel pain. A leper can burn a hand or even wash his face in scalding water and be oblivious to the damage that it it does. Leprosy has been called the painless hell. In third world countries, rats will nibble at a leper's feet while he sleeps because he can't feel the pain. It, It all happens to him undetected. Medical missionary Paul Brand used to do plastic surgery among lepers in India. As a post-op procedure, he would send the patient home with a cat to chase away the rats. Perhaps the worst effect of leprosy was the emotional pain that was involved. You see, lepers were quarantined from other people. If a healthy person came near, it was the leper's duty to shout, Unclean! Unclean! and drive the person away. According to the rabbis, a leper had to stay six feet from other people at all times. If the wind was blowing, the separation grew to over a hundred feet. 
Some rabbis threw stones at lepers to drive them away. One rabbi wrote, I would not buy an egg from a market that was on a street that a leper had walked down. You see, the word leprosy means smitten. And the leper was indeed considered smitten by God. A leopard was not allowed in the temple. Technically, he couldn't pray or even offer a sacrifice. He was not only cut off from his friends and family, but the leper was cut off from God. And yet here's a bold man. Here is a leopard of a leper. In his desperation, he violates all boundaries and decorum. He pushes through the crowd and he approaches Jesus. And behold, a leopard came and worshipped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now this man had faith. He knew that Jesus was able, but he wasn't sure that Jesus was willing. This is our problem sometimes. You see, in addition to his leprosy, this leper also suffered from a faulty view of God. He was worried that because of his miserable condition, God wouldn't help him. Many people today suffer from that same concept. People think that they have to clean up before they can receive God's help. That God doesn't help sinners until sinners help themselves. Guys, this couldn't be more false. Notice what Jesus does. Then he put out his hand and he touched him. In the original language, it's stronger. He gripped him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus deliberately embraced the outcast. The word might even imply a hug. Jesus didn't just speak the word. He hugged the leper into healing. It had been a long time since a healthy hand or a healthy arm had touched the skin of this unloved leper. And Jesus didn't have to touch him to heal him. So often Jesus would just speak the word and a healing would occur. But the love of Jesus touched this man and healed him emotionally even before he was healed physically. These verses prove to you and me that Jesus' holiness doesn't keep him from touching the unclean and the outcast. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus tells him that he needs to obey the law. Leviticus 14. He needs to go and show himself to the priest. But here's the amazing command. And see that you tell no one. Oh my. Think about it. This man had spent years alienated from family and from society. Now his forced exile is over. How are you going to keep this guy from shouting his praise and thanks from the rooftops? And yet Jesus tells him, see that you tell no one. Jesus' motivation for this strange command is actually twofold. First, Jesus knows man's lust for the miraculous. Think about it. People tend to follow a miracle without ever considering where it might lead. Jesus was afraid that his miracles would create a mob that would certainly want his miracles but would stop short of sharing his intentions and his ultimate objectives. This is why he tried to downplay any publicity in the wake of his miracles. And the second reason he said tell no one 
Throughout his ministry, you're going to find that Jesus never sought his own glory. Jesus' miracles were designed to alleviate suffering, to stimulate faith, to illustrate truth, but they were never done to manipulate people or to elevate his own status. Jesus is the ultimate example for you and me. Jesus came to give God glory. And that should be our intention. Notice verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now a centurion was a battle-scarred sergeant in the Roman army. He commanded a century, which was a hundred men. He fought with these men in the trenches. And often, a centurion would grow fond of his men, his soldiers. For this particular sarge, a servant had won his respect and gained his trust. And when this servant became sick, the soldier went to Jesus for help. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, you've got to understand, next to lepers, Roman centurions were the most hated men in Israel. The Jews despised the Roman occupation of their land. And these centurions were Rome's enforcers. Most Jews would have no time for sergeants, not Jesus. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. This servant was a wise man. He realized that he had never lived by the law. In fact, until his servant got sick, he hadn't even believed in God, rarely even thought of God. This pagan Roman knew that he was unworthy of God's attention, let alone a miracle. But this man had faith in Jesus. He says, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another come, and then he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. You see, a servant was sort of a mid-level manager in the Roman military. And he knew the chain of command. He knew how to give orders, and he knew how to take orders. And this centurion knew Jesus' place in the hierarchy. He knew that Jesus was God. No one could do these miracles except he were from God. Jesus had the authority to command even disease to flee. This centurion knew that if the Lion King just spoke a word, his sick servant would be made completely whole. When Jesus heard the man, he marveled. Jesus is about to speak a word of healing, but before he does, he speaks a word about the faith of this Roman. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. In the minds of most Jews, no one would have been further from God's kingdom than a Roman centurion. And yet this man is commended by Jesus for his great faith. Apparently a Gentile had more faith than the outwardly righteous Jews. Notice verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember the Jews were blood relatives of Abraham. They were still heirs of God's kingdom and God's promises. They were the sons of the kingdom. But what happened to the centurion was a preview of what is to come. The Jews in general will be left out of God's kingdom, while many Gentiles will enter in. 
Salvation is about to be offered to people who have faith, not family connections. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Notice Jesus never even made it to the house. As soon as he gave the order, the disease fled and the servant was healed. The story shows that through grace, Jesus reaches out not only to lepers, but to legionnaires, to outcast Jews and to unworthy Gentiles. Guys, God not only can, but God will if you believe. Verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Literally, the original language reads, she was on fire. This was a high fever. This was a serious illness. So Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. Now here's a miracle. Not just that the high fever vanished, but that a mother-in-law would then become grateful and serve her son-in-law. For that matter, the whole family. Notice after she's healed, she serves. And this is always the pattern. Don't ever forget it. If you've been healed or if you've been touched by Jesus, if he's removed from you a high fever, then the best way for you to say thanks is to rise up in the wake of that miracle and begin to serve. Remember, Peter is about to leave all and follow Jesus. Perhaps the healing of his mother-in-law was Jesus' way of reassuring Peter that he would take care of his family. You know, whenever... We leave our family, and sometimes it happens where we have to leave our family behind in order to go and serve the Lord, to do this or to do that. We can always trust Jesus to take care of our family in our absence. I think this was what Jesus was saying to Peter. Here's one more point. Notice, Peter had a mother-in-law. That means he had a wife. Because no man in his right mind would get a mother-in-law without having a wife. I mean, that's the only reason you get a mother-in-law, because you love the wife. But Peter had a wife. Next time you talk to a Roman Catholic friend, ask them if they knew that the first pope had a wife. That'll stir up some conversation. You know, the Roman Catholics claim that Peter was the first pope. But if Peter was the pope, what's he doing with a wife? And if he's not the pope, to whom does any pope trace his authority? Interesting conversation with your Catholic friends. Verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. What an evening. (laughs) I mean, this is evening time. Jesus is off the clock, you might say. This is not work hours. This is in the evening time. When evening had come. It's after a long day. Jesus is tired. Jesus is exhausted. The people now are interrupting his dinner. And yet you don't hear Jesus complain, do you? He puts his dinner in the microwave and he works some overtime. You know, you can't follow Jesus if you're worried about working late hours and missing a few meals. It'll never happen. Jesus healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And here he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 4, saying, He himself took our infirmities 
and bore our sicknesses. In other words, his healing ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, Jesus didn't mind working overtime, did he? I mean, he worked after hours in the evening, healing the sick and casting out demons. But Jesus also knew when it was time to withdraw and when it was time to rest. I mean, Jesus also didn't mind letting the voicemail take a call from time to time. Ministry, you see, can monopolize your time. And if you lack boundaries, if you lack order and and organization in your life, you can get in real trouble. Jesus was clear, he was faithful to withdraw and to spend time with his father. He knew that he wouldn't be much good if he lost communication with headquarters, and neither will you. In the next four verses, Jesus challenges two would-be followers. He says, Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Understand, this world is all about arrival. It's all about getting ahead and then showing off what you've achieved. Hoping at some point, some way, someday, people will point to you and say, he or she has arrived. They've made it to the top. But Jesus was not about getting ahead. Jesus was about passing through. Making it to the top in this life was not Jesus' goal. Notice what he says. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's not exactly arriving, is it? Jesus' hope, Jesus' home was heaven. And if we follow him, our goal will be heaven too. Jesus was not about getting ahead. Jesus was about passing through. And Jesus was not about holding on. Jesus was about moving on. Look what he says to the next would-be disciple. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, you can't be a follower of Jesus and be a clinger. Jesus tells this would-be follower, this wannabe, you might say, that he's got to be willing to turn loose when it's time. Are you willing to turn loose when it's time? When Jesus says move, are you ready to up anchor and set sail? Notice this with these two men. Following Jesus is not about getting ahead. It's about passing through. Following Jesus is not about holding on. It's about moving on. Are you willing to set sail when it's time? And speaking of setting sail. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. So we said this morning the Sea of Galilee sits 685 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains that funnel cold north air south. And when the cold air hits the tropical warm air on top of the lake, it causes these violent sudden storms. In January of 1986, two Jewish fishermen found what turned out to be one of the most amazing archaeological discoveries in the last 100 years. They found a boat that was dated back to the first century A.D. It was in the mud right there off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Today, it's become a tourist attraction. They call it the Jesus Boat. 
And it was a boat typical of the time of Jesus. It measures 26 and a half feet long by 7 and a half feet wide. Now imagine 10 foot seas in this tiny boat. Matthew says, a great tempest arose on the sea. The Greek word translated tempest is seismos. This was a seismic storm. This was an underwater earthquake. And when they went to find Jesus, Matthew tells us he was asleep. He may have been exhausted from ministry. He had a busy couple of days prior. And he may have just laid down in the back of the boat and fallen asleep. But then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. It's interesting, when Mark writes his gospel, he gives us a detail that Matthew leaves out. Mark tells us that before boarding the boat, Jesus said this to his disciples. Let us cross over to the other side. Notice that. Jesus had promised that they would cross over, not go under. But in the heat of the moment, they began to doubt. They started to panic. Guys, Jesus doesn't promise a shelter from the storms of life. Storms are part of the waters we all navigate. No one can escape them. Like the storms on the lake, storms in life arise suddenly, instantaneously, violently, when you least expect them. But Jesus promises to be in our boat. And He promises to help us cross over, not go under. Jesus eventually calms the storm. But you see, faith is learned on the water. The disciples learned to follow Jesus, not just to the storm, but through the storm. There are a lot of people that follow Him to the storm. But do you have faith enough to follow Him through the storm? After the disciples woke Jesus from His nap, He tries to awaken them from their spiritual slumber. He said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Understand, following Jesus isn't just boarding the boat, or or in essence, becoming a Christian. Faith grows courage. Faith continues to follow Jesus, even in the teeth of a storm. Well, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice Jesus transformed a great tempest into a great calm. He has that power. You know, it intrigues me that Jesus didn't just speak to the sea. Rather, he rebuked it. Rebuke is how you drive away a demon. I believe this storm was not just a collision of cold and warm air. It wasn't just meteorological. It was theological. The evil scar was trying to drown the Lion King. But the lion prevailed. And so the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? I'm impressed when a... God says something and his kids obey. Who can this be? That even his toddler obeys him. I'm impressed. But how much more impressed are you when a guy says to the wind and the waves, be still, and they obey him. This is somebody special. In fact, as the disciples concluded, this must be God. Only God has power over nature. This man must be God. Now when he had come to the other side, 
Notice he made it to the other side. He went over, not under. To the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that one, no one could pass that way. These were wild, crazy maniacs, demoniacs. They were filled with devils, and they just prowled the streets and and they became a roadblock. Nobody wanted to pass through. People would steer clear of the road along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee for fear of these crazed men. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Notice the demons that cry out from within these men. They recognize and they believe in Jesus. They call Him the Son of God. And the demons realize they're no match for Jesus. They know that their destiny is hell fire. That's why God made hell for the devil. And his, he didn't make hell for you, for me, or for, some, for any human being. The Bible says that he made hell for the devil and his angels. These demons, they know their destiny. It's hell fire. They just don't want to end up there before it's time. You know, it's interesting, these demons, when they, when they speak to Jesus... They really have some pretty good theology. Pretty sound theology. They know who Jesus is. They have a good grasp on where they're going to end up in the last days. They've got good eschatology. I mean, these demons prove that there are a lot of folks with sound theology who are not going to end up in heaven. You see, you can miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance from your head to your heart. You see, it can be in your head, but it's got to get in your heart. Real saving faith comes from your heart. If you believe with all your heart, you'll be saved. Now, a good way off from them, there, were, there was a herd of many swine feeding. And so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Notice the demons don't want to be disembodied spirits. They immediately, once they get kicked out of the swine, they immediately start looking for a body to inhabit. Understand that both the Holy Spirit and evil spirits desire to embody humans. They want a body to inhabit. The goal is the same, but the intention is different. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to inhabit you so that He can clean you up and He can make you like Jesus. Evil spirits know that man was made in God's image. But that image has been defiled by sin. Thus, the demon wants to further warp and distort the image of God in man. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to live in you to build you up. Evil spirits want in you to tear you down. That's the difference. But they both won't in you. And Jesus said to the demons, Go. So when they had come out, notice they didn't argue, didn't negotiate. They obeyed Jesus directly. When Jesus said go, they came out and they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. It's amazing the pigs had less tolerance for the demons than the two crazed demoniacs had had. 
It's sad, but this herd of pigs commits an act of suicide. I guess you could call this the case of the deviled ham. These demons here are hamming it up. They don't want a boring ending. You know, we know from the scriptures that one day Satan and his demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But where did these pigs end up? My guess is hog heaven. But anyway. It's okay to laugh. I mean, people won't think less of you if you'll laugh at such a joke. Well, maybe they will. On our trips to Israel, we always drive the road through the land of Gadara where this all took place. In fact, you can see the slope that kind of falls right into the lake. Anyway, there is a slope on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee where the slope just kind of falls right toward the lake. And you can see right where the, the pigs would have ran off the edge of the cliff right into the water. Two years ago, on our trip to Israel, we were driving through Gadara. We were coming back from the Golan Heights the place where Matthew chapter 8 took place, right there in Gadara. And this is no joke. We're driving down the road when all of a sudden a wild boar, a pig, a swine, it comes out of the bushes, it runs right across the road in front of our bus, and it actually hits the side of the bus and puts a dent in the wheel well. I couldn't believe it. I mean, right in Gadara, we meet a wild swine. Then those who kept them fled and went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, Jews would not have been herding swine. You remember, pork was outlawed. Bacon was not a koshered food. The region around the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee was Gentile territory. It was dominated by Greek culture. It was called the Decapolis. Or the ten cities. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. What a sad ending to a wonderful story. Demoniacs are delivered. They've been snatched from the claws of the devil. And yet the townsfolks are upset over the loss of revenue. Evidently, pork bellies were big business. In the end, their business was more important than God's business. I hope that's not true of you. So far, the Lion King has proven his sovereignty over disease and over nature and over demons. Even the perfect storm is no match for Jesus. But in chapter 9, Jesus confronts our greatest enemy, sin. He boards the boat and he heads back to the western shore. Chapter 9. So Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city, or Capernaum. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. The other Gospels tell us that the house was so crowded that the lame man's friends walked him around and brought him up on the rooftop and then tore away the thatch so that they could lure him down through a hole in the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now the man was let down through the roof in order to see Jesus. But his buddies at this point are a bit let down themselves. 
For they wanted his legs to be healed, not necessarily his sins to be forgiven. The paralytic's obvious need was healing for his crippled legs. But understand, Jesus looked far deeper into his life. Often our spiritual condition, you know, we think of our physical condition as being more important. But that's not the way God sees us. God understands that our spiritual condition is far more important than our physical condition. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, better to to be right with God and to go to heaven with one eye. You know, than to go to hell with two eyes. Physical condition is not what's important. Spiritual destination is what's important. Jesus is more concerned about where this guy's going to end up spiritually than what's going on with him physically. There's an ancient tradition that says that this man had become paralyzed from a sexually transmitted disease. In other words, his sickness was because of his sin. And Jesus is saying, first things first. This is still his priority with us. You know, some people will come to Jesus to be blessed. Or they'll come to Jesus to be healed. When first, they need to be forgiven. In verse 3, look at the reaction that occurs when Jesus forgives the lame man's sin. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. The scribes had great theology. They understood that only God could forgive. Only God can forgive sin. They knew that by forgiving this fellow, Jesus was claiming to be God. But you see, the scribes had poor discernment. Jesus was no poser. Jesus was God. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise and walk? It's tougher to forgive sins. But I would imagine both are a bit beyond man's capabilities. Jesus continues, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. When the paralyzed man took up his mat and walked home, it cut the rug out from under the Jews. How can they deny Jesus' authority to forgive sin in face of his power to remove its consequences? Back to the question, what's easier? To heal sickness or to forgive sins? Ultimately, it would prove far more difficult to forgive sins. Jesus healed by just speaking the word. It would take his death on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Verse 8. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Isn't it interesting that every time Jesus performs a miracle, people end up praising and glorifying God. You know, there are ministers today who need to take lessons from Jesus. It seems that whenever they work, it promotes or pumps up themselves. Jesus was always diverting the attention off himself onto his Father. And anything less for us is sin. Reminds me of the Taiwanese man who loved a young lady dearly. In fact, he wrote to her over and over expressions of love, expressions of his great love. In fact, over the course of the year, this woman received 700 lengthy letters, 62 of which 
contained marriage proposals. And the letter succeeded. At the end of the year, the woman married. But not to the man who had sent the letters. She married the mailman who had delivered the letters. And when you glorify the pastor, you're in essence marrying the mailman. The deliverer. Rather than the God who sent the love letters. He is the one you should love and follow and serve and glorify and praise. Verse 9. Now as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. You get the impression here Jesus is reaching down into the grab bag of mankind. Into the ooey gooey bag. You know, he got a leper first, but then he reached a little further. You know, and then he got a demon-possessed man. And now he reaches even further to what? An IRS agent. A tax collector. A guy named Matthew. We know from Mark that Matthew's given name was Levi. From the tribe of Levi. From the priestly caste. But Matthew had strayed from his religious roots. Matthew should have been worshiping in the temple. He was a Levite. Instead, he was working for the Romans. That shows you how far he's fallen. As far as the Jews were concerned, tax collectors were worse than even lepers or centurions. A tax collector was a traitor. He was an enemy collaborator. He was taking money out of Jewish pockets to enrich the coffers of their foreign oppressors. A tax, and tax collection on top of that was a commission job. So Matthew had little ways that he could exploit his countrymen in order to increase his take. Matthew was an IRS agent. But need I say more about his popularity? The Israeli tour guides, they, when we go to Israel, they, they take us by the Department of the Treasury. It's a brand new building there in Jerusalem. It's the Israeli Internal Revenue Service. And the tour guides have a name for it. They call it the New Wailing Wall. We all can identify. Understand, Matthew's parents are ashamed of him. I mean, I mean, which mother here tonight wants their son to grow up and be a tax collector? At least don't admit it. I mean, Matthew's parents are embarrassed. His neighbors despise him. He's hated by everyone but Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he calls him and he says to him simply, follow me. And this is the most amazing thing. There was something about Jesus that just caused Matthew to want to follow him. We're told he arose and he followed. Jesus made an outcast, a member of his own family. Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Notice this, Matthew not only opens his heart to Jesus, but he opens his home. He throws a party and he invites all of his rowdy friends, all these unsavory types like hookers and tax collectors. Did you know that studies show That after a person has been a Christian for two years, they lose all meaningful connections with non-Christians. Think about it. Their free time is spent at church. 
it's spent with Christians. And this isn't bad, but it doesn't bode well for our witness. How can we witness to people if we don't know people who aren't Christians? If we're not in contact with sinners? You may have opened your heart to Jesus, but have you ever opened your home to Jesus? When was the last time that you reached out to some unsavory neighbors and invited them over so that you could invite them to Jesus? Well, well, I'm too busy with my Bible studies and discipleship groups. I got some Christian friends I want to hang out with. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We need to be that too. Our homes do need to be havens from the world, but they also also need to be hospitals for the wounded. Why not think about having a Matthew party? Why not thinking about inviting some of your unsavory friends over and mix them together with some Jesus people who love to witness? Maybe a few tax collectors might just get saved. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The Pharisees were appalled at the company that Jesus kept. They were too good to hang out with sinners. You know, it's interesting that the Lord of heaven didn't come off holier than thou. We know that because there was something about Jesus that attracted Sinners. They were comfortable in his presence. It was his love. It was his authenticity. It was many things. They knew Jesus hated their sin. But they never doubted his love. I wonder if sinners are attracted to you. If they want to know what you've got. If there's something about the way you treat them. And the life you live. And the love you have. That draws them to you. If you had a party, would they come? Would they receive your invitation? Or would they think, why would I want to spend a boring night with that guy? Was something about Jesus that attracted these folks. And he reveals the attraction in verse 13. But go and learn what this means, he says to the Jews. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy was the honey that drew sinners to Jesus. Mercy. Guys, people don't understand the sacrifices that we make as Christians until they understand the mercy we've received. We love Jesus because he's first loved us. Religious folks want to show off their sacrifices. They want to focus on what they're giving up for Jesus without focusing on what Jesus has given up for them. Remember Romans 2 verse 4. Do not despise the riches of His goodness, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Why why did sinners swarm to Jesus like bugs on a light bulb? It's because of one thing, His mercy and His grace and His love and His goodness. Does your brand of Christianity attract or does it repel? Verse 13, Jesus says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Guys, we need to break out of our holy huddles, and we need to care about people that are headed for hell. It's just that simple. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now remember the Pharisees, they were the hot dogs of holiness. They were the spiritual show-offs. They were the ones who fasted in places and in ways that attracted attention to them. Their face was painted with a white paste. They fasted in public places. They, They made a big deal of it so that they could be seen by men, where they could hear the oohs and ahs and bask in the glory of others. John's disciples, they fasted for more noble reasons. They wanted a more intimate communication with God. And so they deprived the body of food so that they could feed the soul. You know, it's tough to mourn over your sin when you've got a mouthful of food. Fasting facilitates an attitude of repentance. That's why it's important. That's why we should practice it. I've heard it put, fasting is a way to fatten up your soul. Fasting was a good idea. It was a wholesome, spiritual, biblical idea. So why were Jesus' disciples making merry, having fun, partying all the time instead of fasting. John's posse was mourning and fasting while Peter and the boys were feasting. What's up with that? Jesus explains the difference. He said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In the first century, Israeli newlyweds didn't have a honeymoon. The couple spent their first week with their friends and with their family. For seven days they celebrated with, quote, the friends of the bridegroom. For a working class couple, this was the happiest week of their lives. And the wedding party was exempt during that weekly feast from different forms of mourning or fasting. The rabbis wrote this, All in attendance at the marriage feast are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. This is a time for feasting. The the bridegroom, the wedding part, is a time for feasting, not fasting. As far as the disciples were concerned, they were the bride. And they were with their bridegroom, Jesus. Every moment they spent with Jesus was a cause for celebration. Fasting would have been inappropriate. But Jesus goes on. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. When Jesus ascends to heaven, fasting will become more important. At that point, talking to God will become a spiritual exercise. And fasting will then have a purpose. But while Jesus was with them physically, while he was present with them right there, you know, in their band, why would you go off and fast when you could sit around the campfire and just talk to God? While Jesus was with them in bodily form, they were better off roasting another marshmallow. And trying to fast. Jesus also says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. You know this. Put a denim patch on a pair of old Levi's. You got trouble. When you wash the jeans, the patch is going to shrink, but your worn out Levi's won't. Not Levi's, but Levi's. Levi's, not Levites, but Levi's. In other words, the new patch will tear the old jeans. Verse 17, neither is it a good idea to put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins will break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. 
Old wineskins were dry and brittle. You put new wine in an old flask, and when the wine began to ferment and expand, it would burst the old flask and it would spill out on the ground. This is why you got to put new wine in new wineskins. New wineskins are soft and they're supple and they're pliable and they're moldable and they're flexible and they're stretchable. Jesus is declaring here that God is about to do a new thing in the earth. That the Spirit is about to work in new ways. And new structures will be required to contain His acts. The old guard is on its way out. Move over and make room for the new work of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, Jesus was speaking here of Judaism. Symbols were needed until the substance had come. Once Jesus was on the scene, the rules and rituals of Judaism became obsolete. Moses had emphasized law. Jesus would emphasize love. And you can't pour the new wine of grace into the brittle bottles of legalism. It doesn't work. But these words of Jesus have an even broader application. For God is still doing new things on the earth. And when he begins a new work in a new way, we have to be moldable and adaptable and willing to change our approach and be flexible to the Spirit. If we're resistant, if we hold on to the old ways, the Spirit of God might just move right past us. Always remember the last words of a dying church. We've always done it that way. The Spirit of God is like new wine. He's moving and expanding and growing. And if you want to keep up, you've got to be flexible. Let's not be old, brittle wineskins. Let's be new wineskins. Now, as I said earlier, the Lion King roars here in chapters 8 and 9. He's overcome disease. He's overcome demons. He's overcome sickness. He's overcome sin. But now he defeats Scar's secret weapon, death. Verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Luke tells us that this desperate dead was named Jairus. Jairus was the ruler of the local synagogue. You see, each local assembly of Jews was run by a council of ten men, and one of those ten men was elected as the ruler of the synagogue. Jairus occupies a prestigious post. He's a spiritual leader. He's a man who's well-respected in the community. He's a person of clout. Jesus, on the other hand, is this unsanctioned preacher. I mean, he's a social nobody. Jairus is upscale and respected and sophisticated. Coming to Jesus and making this kind of request for help was a giant step for Jairus. Jairus has to climb over his pride here and plead for a miracle. What humbled Jairus is what has toppled many a man. His love for his daughter. He had a little princess at home. Anybody here got a little princess at home? Oh my. She smiles and I melt. Daddy, let's go for ice cream. And we go for ice cream. She's 23 years old. She calls me up. My heart leaps inside. He had a little princess at home. They played Barbies. And they went out on dates together. And they ate ice cream together. 
Luke tells us that she was 12 years old. But now she's dead. Remember Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind? Some of you are probably not old enough. But us 50-year-olds remember Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. You remember when his little girl died? He went nuts. Remember that? He locked himself up. He was unwilling to accept what had happened. Well, just like Rhett, Jarius is desperate. He comes to Jesus. He, he throws all the sophistication, all his pride aside. He comes to Jesus and he begs for his little girl's life. So Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Notice, for 12 years, Jairus' little princess had been full of life. But for those same 12 years, this woman had been dying a slow death. She had been bleeding to death. Again, it was Dr. Luke who said that this woman had wasted all of her money on physicians who had been unsuccessful in her treatment. You see, Jewish doctors, they had strange remedies for a woman with menstrual problems. The Talmud had 11 different prescribed cures for this malady. Some were outlandish. For example... The Talmud said that you could carry a kernel of barley corn found in the dung of droppings of a white female donkey and you would be healed. Did you get that? Or you could boil three Persian onions in wine, drink them, and that would heal you. This woman had wasted all of her savings on these kinds of silly cures and still She was bleeding to death. And the worst dimension of her suffering was not just her physical pain, but it was her spiritual distress. For a woman with this malady was unable to enter the temple to worship God. She was considered unclean, and the temple was off limits. So get the picture. For 12 years, Jairus' little daughter has been married, and yet suddenly it's ended. For 12 years, this woman has been miserable. Now that too is about to come to an end. You know, life is like that, isn't it? You never know what's next. You never know how suddenly your plight in life might change. But Jesus knows. Both Jairus and this woman have faith to reach out to Jesus and to expect a miracle. Verse 21. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Now, her belief was probably based on superstition. Folks in the ancient world believed that there was power in the borders of a holy man's robe. They also believed that you could sit in the shadow of a man of God and you would be healed. So her her faith here is probably based on superstition. But it's still a faith in Jesus. Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. Jesus made sure that the woman knew that it wasn't the hem of his garment that was the source of the miracle. The reason she was healed was her faith in him. You know, this woman is an amazing example of God's mercy. She is very uninformed. Her faith is theologically flawed. She's coming for selfish, even superstitious motives. And yet she still had faith in Jesus 
And God honored that faith. As a result of her faith, she was healed. I want us to understand, God doesn't save us because of our infinite wisdom or because of our perfect theology. God saves us for one reason. It's because of our faith in His grace. Verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and understand, this family had gone off and hired professional mourners. This was a common practice. These people were hired to come in and mourn and wail and create an atmosphere of grieving for the dead. Jesus said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And then they ridiculed him. They mocked him. You ever heard of the movie, Meet the Mockers? Well, Jesus here meets the mockers. Let me suggest to you tonight that whenever Jesus works a miracle, there will always be some guy mocking God and casting doubt. Sometimes the mocking comes from within. Our own doubts challenge our faith. But notice what happens. When the crowd was put outside, when he got rid of the mockers, He then went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Here is an important observation. Jesus moves in when the mockers are put out. Before he raises this little girl, he first kicks out the cry boys. Listen, Jesus wants to perform a miracle of resurrection in your life tonight. Not tomorrow, not this week, but tonight. He wants to bring back to life a hope or a dream or a relationship or a ministry. But negativity is blocking that miracle. Maybe it's your own negativity. Maybe it's the mocking of a cynical neighbor. Or maybe a family member or maybe a friend. And just about the time you have faith, you hear that mocking in the back of your mind. Understand... Jesus won't move in to work His miracle until you kick out the mockers. Until you cast out the cynicism. Jairus trusted Jesus. He kicked out the mockers. And you need to trust Jesus too. Verse 26. After the little girl was healed, risen from the dead, the report of this went out into all that land. I'm sure it did. How could you keep something like this quiet?